We are in Luke, believe it or not. We've, we've been in Luke pretty much since he finished writing it, I think. Uh, it's been a while. This is the 41st message in the series. And uh, Linda did one for us just a couple of weeks ago. And we're in chapter 12. In chapter 12 of, of Luke. Um, talking to the guys at the preaching course on Wednesday night. And just saying that sometimes... You know, expositional preaching forces you to deal with difficult passages, difficult texts that you might not otherwise go to. There needs to be room to just set that to one side and preach whatever God's putting on your heart. But here we're working systematically through Luke. We want to get our eyes on Jesus. And here's another one of those passages that that can be tricky enough. So here we go. It's verses 35 to uh, 48 is as far as we'll go today. I'm just going to read five or six verses to start us off. Luke 12, verse 35. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Have you ever been at home and you know that someone is going to return later in the day and there's things that you need to do before they return, and then they come home early and you haven't done them? Uh, yesterday, Linda and the kids were in Belfast. I was at home and I thought to myself, you know, whenever they get home, I'll have some salad and stuff prepared for, for tea. Uh, they normally text when they leave Belfast and I'll know how much time I have to, to get myself together and, and do that. But they texted when they were in Banbridge, not in Belfast. And I suddenly had the knife was, was flying through the peppers like, like, like blazes. Um, you ever been waiting for someone to come and they come back earlier than you thought or they take longer and you start to think they're not going to come. This is, I think, the first time in Luke that Jesus explicitly speaks of an idea that is known biblically as his glorious appearing that we sometimes refer to in the church as his second coming, even though that term is not used in the Bible. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not actually a biblical term. That The Bible talks about his glorious appearing or his return. And in Luke 12, so far, Jesus has warned his followers about hypocrisy, about greed, and about anxiety. And I wonder... Is, is what he's going to talk about here, being ready and being thoughtful about his return. Is that a good way to guard our hearts from those things that he has warned us about? This is an area of Bible teaching that is known as eschatology. Big word for the day, eschatology. 
And what it simply means is the study of last things. And it has probably given rise to more insanity in the church than anything else. More division, uh, crazy sensational ideas about the return of Christ that don't stand up to the, to the light of Scripture. And in the Bible, whenever the, the Scriptures teach us about Jesus' return, it is not to do with figuring out dates or times or things like that. It is to do with how we live in the meantime, always. It's about how we live awaiting the Master's return. The whole book of Revelation that talks much about end things, but I think covers a, lo a, a much longer period than just some notion of seven years, but covers a long period of church history. It's written to the persecuted church in the first century. It applies to all of us. And it's teaching them in light of the things that are coming, how they are to live, how they are to endure, how they are to overcome. The, the notion and the teaching of Jesus' return is to teach us and show us how to live and encourage us in the here and now. Not to cause us to sit and speculate about the future and try to figure out which one of our bonkers world leaders is the Antichrist. That is not the point. And a good, healthy eschatology might just protect us from greed. It might protect us from anxiety. It might protect us from hypocrisy and those things that Jesus has mentioned in this chapter. So is it good or bad? Is it good or bad? What, what, what do you think when you think that Jesus could return at any moment? Including now. What, what is it, a good thought or a bad thought? Ponder it. How does it make you feel? Does it make you feel a little bit apprehensive? What if he returns when I'm not ready? What if he returns when I haven't read my Bible for a few days? What if he returns when I've lost my temper about something? What if he returns when there's a relationship that's strained and I have not put it right? What if he returns and you know, fill in the blank? Lots of wee things that might come into mind. You think, oh goodness, I really hope when Jesus comes back, I'm sitting in my chair with my Bible open being a good Christian, you know, and not on the loo or something like that. What, what does it make you feel? Is there a little bit of apprehension? Goodness, I, there's there, a bit of fear associated with it. There should not be fear associated with it. When we get to the end today, we will see that Paul describes it as not something to be feared, but as the blessed hope a good thing the prospect of his imminent return can be threatening for people but Jesus in this passage teaches that it will be good he uses that phrase three times it will be good who will it be good for in verse 37 it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching watching when he comes now in Acts chapter 1, some angels said to the disciples who were standing just looking up at the sky because Jesus had just ascended and they were just, you know, don't do that. <laughs> you know, he said, don't just stand there gazing up into the sky. That's not what he means by watching. It's not that hopefully at that moment that Jesus appears, returns, however it is, hopefully I just happen to be looking geographically in the right direction at the right time. That is not what he means. 
that this this word watching has got more to do with being awake. It is used in other contexts in the New Testament about staying awake, staying alert. In ancient Jerusalem and other ancient cities, there would have been a guy who walked around the walls at night and he was on the lookout for danger and he was called a watchman. His job was to stay awake and to stay alert all night long and not let his guard drop to be sharp. And it also is used frequently in the context of prayer. Prayer. Jesus said in Gethsemane to the disciples who were getting a bit sleepy, he said, could you not watch with me? Could you not stay awake, stay alert at this time that we are praying? Could you not stay sharp? And there is an element of watching. There is an element of looking in that our gaze is fixed on Jesus. But it's not a geographical looking. It's a spiritual focus. It will be good for those who are watching when the master comes. Who are alert. Who are sharp. Who haven't grown sleepy. About 10 years ago I spent a long time in the story of Samson. Just got consumed by by this man and trying to figure out is he good is he bad is he good is he bad is he good is he bad and concluding that after all his badness and ignorance and arrogance he's actually in his last moments possibly more like Jesus than anyone else in the New Testament in his last moments with the arms outstretched and the enemies getting destroyed. Beautiful picture of the cross. But as I, as I sat in, in Judges and, and tried to picture everything in Samson's life, that scene where Delilah gets him to go to sleep, and I can see him. I can see Delilah and I can see Samson. He's lying, he's got his head on her lap and his long hair, and she's just playing with his hair, and he's sort of nodding off to sleep. I can see it. As she lulls him to sleep and his strength is gone and God leaves him. That sad, sad verse where we read in Judges 16, he did not realize that God had left him sleepy and dull. And Jesus calls on his church to be alert. That does not mean that you sin this afternoon if you're going for a nap. That's okay. We're not talking about that sort of sleep. We're talking about a spiritual dullness. An insensitivity to the spirit that is dangerous. Jesus says, my return will be good for those who are alert and who are sharp. As the years go by, you know, whenever you've walked with Jesus, there's that early excitement. Everything's new. You're reading his word for the first time. You're, you're, you're encountering the power of his spirit. You're, you're enjoying the love of community and the thrill of worshiping him together with other people. But as the years go by, it's very easy to start to just get a wee bit sloppy and slumber and sleep and just nod off spiritually the discipline of staying alert. Jesus tells in the middle of this passage, he tells a little sort of mini parable about servants waiting for the master to return for the banquet, from the wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him. A wedding would have lasted about a week and you did not know when the master was going to return and he is commending the servants who are at the door watching, ready for him. And then comes this amazing twist at the end of verse 37. You're not expecting it. You read it and you think, have I misread that? Because it says when the master gets back, 
He doesn't sit down and make everybody serve him. He is so thrilled to find his servants have been watching that the master dresses himself to serve. He gets the servants to recline at the table and he comes and waits on them. That's how thrilled Jesus is at the prospect of finding a people who are watching, who are alert. He comes and he doesn't say, right, you get me this, you get me that. No, he says, you recline at the table. We're going to have a feast and I'm going to serve you. That is one of the most amazing sort of, this, this can't be right, promises of the Bible, but it is right. So it will be good for those who are watching. It will also be good. The second time he uses that phrase, it will be good. He says it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. Even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. And he uses, he uses two little pictures as well in the passage that help to, to get this idea of readiness. The first one at the start of our passage in verse 35 says, be dressed ready for service. In your older versions of the Bible that render things maybe more literally, it says, gird up your loins. <laughs> Have you girded up your loins lately? Gird up your loins meant you were wearing a long flowing garment. It wasn't really sort of appropriate for working or running and you would get the hem of the garment, you would pull it up and tuck it into your belt. That was girding up your loins. And throughout the Bible, it is a picture for readiness. I'm ready. I'm good to go. I don't know about your house, but my house, I frequently ask, are you ready? And I hear, yes, yes, we're ready. Are you ready? Yes, we're ready. Right, we're going. No, hang on, I have to put my shoes on. (laughs) Hang on, I have to do this, I have to do that. No, no. This is this picture of readiness. And it starts way back in Exodus. The first time it's used, it is in Exodus 12, Passover night, where they're having the Passover meal and they they are told to, to be dressed as they're having the meal, to be ready to go. Now, listen, this little illustration of being dressed and being ready. Some of us, I think, and again, we'll reflect on this a bit later, we, we think about the return of Jesus And we think about all the things that that we would do if we knew he was coming. He says to the servants here, being ready means being dressed. Now, being dressed is something you do every day, unless you're weird and some strange stuff that goes on in your house behind closed curtains. Like, But this is normal, everyday stuff. Normal, everyday stuff. This is a life of ongoing readiness, continual readiness. Not something that you've got written down on a list. I'm mad for lists on my phone. And it's not, you know, there's a, a list somewhere saying second coming, things to do. You know, that is, not, that is not what this is. This is every day. Be dressed, be ready. This is the normal, the ordinary, the everyday, the mundane, faithfully following Jesus every day, not trying to frantically sort it all out at the last minute. And the other picture he gives for readiness is to keep your lamps burning. Again, in 1235, this dark world, but but we are light and we have light and the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and we're to have our lamps burning that's our responsibility but again there's nothing special about that 
In a dark, you know, in a physically dark place, you put the light on. You go into the room and you put a light on. You get up in the morning, you put a light on in the, in the darker times of the year. There's nothing special about it. This is normal everyday life. Get dressed, keep your lamp burning. It's not something you suddenly do at the last minute because you know, you know some sign has occurred somewhere and some prophet on American TV has said Jesus is coming tomorrow and suddenly you think, oh, better get dressed and light the lamp. This is normal, everyday, faithful living. Be ready. These are simple, normal pictures of an ongoing life of preparation and readiness. You see, we don't just get saved and do nothing. That's sometimes where our evangelism can fall a bit flat. Get saved, you're going to heaven, put your wristband on and you'll get in. And you don't have to do anything. And Jesus here is not talking about that. He is talking about continual preparation. Every day, getting dressed. Every day, lighting the lamp. Every day, faithful readiness. He talks in other places and other parables about those who turn up at a wedding feast and they don't have the appropriate clothes on and they're put out. He talks about others who are waiting for the bridegroom and in their waiting and in his apparent delay, their lamps run out of oil and they don't have any more and they don't get in. If you fall asleep at the wheel and I don't wake you up, then I don't love you. (laughs) People sometimes need warnings about their sleepiness, about their lack of preparation, about their spiritual dullness, about being lulled to sleep by Delilah and not being ready and not watching. And there just needs to be a poke or a prod. Wake up, (laughs) wake up. The master could return at any moment. In fact, he could return like a thief. Understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. Now, if you saw this van driving up and down your street, you might take action. Does anybody know whose van that is? Who would be found in that van? Harry and Marv, yes. It's Harry and Marv's OK Plumbing van. I did find a plumbing company called the Wet Bandits when I was doing my research this week. Uh, But yeah, if you saw that van driving up and down your road, particularly in the week before Christmas, you would probably take some action. You might check the windows were closed and you might check the the doors were locked and that the burglar alarm was working and that you had your insurance in place because you know a thief is on the move. And the problem with, with, with Jesus' return, the problem with it, it could happen at any time. It won't be announced. We won't see the van. <laughs> we won't see the van. And therefore, we have to be in this ongoing state of vigilance, ready, watching. There's a third group of people that Jesus says it will be good for. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance At the proper time, it will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. It will be good for those who are watching. It will be good for those who are ready. And it will be good for those who are faithful. Faithful. Faithful in their ministry. Now, that word... (laughs) 
has become narrowed down way too much in our thinking. Ministry just means service. And can I tell you that my primary ministry is not to this church. My primary ministry is to be a follower of Jesus, first and foremost. That is, that has to be the absolute first priority in my life, to be a follower and a servant of Jesus. Church comes second. No, it doesn't. After my ministry and my service of Jesus, I serve my family. (coughs) Paul teaches that you can't lead or serve in the church if you can't serve at home. I'm here and we're here for a short, a relatively short time each week. We're in work for a lot longer. There's a ministry there of faithfully living out Jesus Christ in front of those that you work with. You understand? Don't narrow down ministry to there's the pastor, there's the worship leader, there's the youth ministry organizer, there's the Sunday school teacher, there's the administrator, there's this, there's that. Don't, don't narrow it down to that. Your whole life is your ministry. Your whole life. There will be, for, for many of you, there will be long periods in, in life where your ministry is being a, a good parent. Living out Jesus in front of your children, that will be your ministry and that will be enough to keep you busy for a long period of time. Ministry is a wide, broad thing. It is loving Jesus in all of these different contexts in life and what ministry may look like today in 2023, it might look completely different next year and might completely different five years later because it changes. But I want, you to, I want you to understand that it is not an official title or an official role. This is what I do. It's this is who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus in my home. I'm a follower of Jesus in Portadown College Chemistry Department. I'm a follower of Jesus wherever. I'm a follower of Jesus in the hospital. I'm a follower of Jesus in the bathroom sales showroom. I'm a follower of Jesus at the ark. I'm a follower of Jesus delivering mail. I'm a follower of Jesus counseling people. That's the ministry. Don't narrow it down to having to have a particular name on the back of your shirt. That's, that's what I am and that's what I always will be. No. A few years ago, I, we had this ministry to young people. We, did, we don't have it at the minute in the town. I, I wish we did, but I'm not grieved about it. I don't feel like my life is empty because I'm no longer doing that. That was for that time and that season. I'd love to see it start again, but I don't sit and think I'm completely useless because I'm not fulfilling that particular ministry at this particular time. ministry changes simplify the whole thing follow Jesus in all of life be faithful whether it's in work or at home or in church or on the streets or whatever be faithful in ministering in serving him and in loving him in the world Jesus said love God love each other that's how he summed it up he gave us plenty of scope for how that actually pans out in everyday life And I want you to note something really important here. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? This faithful servant was faithful in how he looked after the other servants. Now listen to me because I'm going to make a really important point for the next few minutes. This Jesus' benchmark here for faithfulness is how other people in the household are treated. 
how other people in the house, not outside the household, I'm not saying we don't treat people outside the household well, but Jesus here is calling for faithfulness in how one particular servant treats the other servants in the household. Faithfulness has a lot to do with how we treat other Christians. How we treat one another in the church. Jesus in Matthew 25, let me read something to you. Now, this, this is going to poke you, and if you, you, you know, you might just, you know, you might find yourself initially just saying no. <laughs> That's okay. Say no if you want, but think about it. Who's Jesus talking about in Matthew 25? Let me read Matthew 25 because there are two words that people read really quickly in Matthew 25. Um, I'm going to read. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read round about verse 37 just to make a point here. Because we all, we have an idea of what, who these people are that Jesus is talking about. And I just want to play with it a wee bit and then run. Verse 37, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brethren, you did for me. Now, did you hear the, did you hear the wee bit that we sometimes read really quickly? Whatever you did for the least of these, my brethren. Now, this, that's a passage that has traditionally been, been used to, to encourage ministry to the world. Absolutely go for it 100%. But can we not ignore the words, my brethren? Because I think Jesus is teaching in Matthew 25. You just say no and then go home and think about it. I think he's teaching that the, the separation between the sheep and the goats, uh, it's to do with how people treat one another in the church. The goats. <laughs> the goats. And we're not talking greatest of all time goats. We're talking goats in the traditional sense you are a goat those who don't look after his brethren who don't look after the household of faith who don't look out for other christians i believe jesus is teaching that faithfulness has a lot to do with how we treat one another in the church it will be good for those who are faithful, but you know what? It will be bad for some. <laughs> it will be bad. Suppose in verse 45, the servant says to himself, my master has taken a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. There are some for whom it will be bad. Passing of the years makes people complacent about the prospect of the Lord's coming. They get sleepy rather than watchful. They allow the light and the lamp to go out. What about the servant who starts to engage in excessive consumption and indulgence? And look at, the, look at what happens in the middle of the verse. Again, you've got to look carefully. He begins to beat the other servants. He begins to mistreat the other members of the household. This again, I believe, is about how people treat one another in the church. 
this servant is abusing the other servants. And he will be punished. Three punishments are mentioned. And this is one of the most severe punishments in the entire Bible. And I want you to hold in mind that this is for someone who's mistreating others in the household. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces. Surely that's not what he says. Yes, it is. <laughs> Wake up. He will cut him to pieces. Your Bible might say he will cut him off or might sort of make it a wee bit more you know, Sunday morning-ish, but that's what it says. And assign him a place with the unbelievers. This is severe language. Whether it's literal or metaphorical, I don't want to be literally cut to pieces. I don't want to be metaphorically, symbolically cut to pieces. I don't want any cutting going on. All right? Jesus says this person who mistreats the other servants in the household will be cut to pieces. Whatever that looks like, it is not good. His return will be bad. Now listen to me. I know this is heavy, especially when you're just about to tuck into a barbecue. But listen to me. I blame Luke. Okay, he put it there. Ponder the absolute severity of judgment on those who mistreat others in the household of faith. Because that's the context. In verse 1 Corinthians, Paul says something similar. And again, get the weight of it. Anyone who mistreats somebody else in the household of faith doesn't read their Bible. They just don't. Because you can't read this in your Bible and then go and be horrible to somebody within the household of faith. Put them down, abuse them, take advantage of them. Whether it's on a small scale or whether it's on a grand scale, like, like some of the, the big people who have fallen this last few years globally in the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So the people are the temple whether they're inside or outside or wherever they are. The people are the temple. If anyone destroys God's temple, if anyone hurts the people, if anyone damages the servants, mistreats, abuses the servants, causes division, if anyone destroys the temple, God will destroy that person. That's severe. Okay? Lord, put a guard in my mouth that I would not slander another saint. No matter what they've done. Okay? That I would not put down another brother or sister. That I would not cause division. That I would not cause hurt. And if those things are caused unintentionally, that I would put them right. Because God will destroy the person who destroys the temple. Severe judgment on, on anyone who causes harm. With, this is, these are God's children. This is the church that in Acts 20, Jesus paid for with his own blood. Okay? Treat it with the utmost respect because when the master returns, there is a severe judgment on those who cause division. Severe. He goes on in verse 46 to, to, or verse 47 and the start of verse 48 to talk about sort of varying degrees of judgment. I don't understand this. 
The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready will be beaten with many blows. So so this guy just didn't bother doing anything. He knew what he was meant to do. He didn't do it. There's a degree of punishment. Then there's another guy who didn't know anything uh, and lived in a way that was deserving of punishment and was beaten with few blows. I don't fully understand that. I can't I can't open it up the way I would like to. But there's a, there's a varying degree of responsibility which is summed up in verse 48. At the end of the verse, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. We have been given much. Okay. All the books. All the podcasts, all the sermons, all the teaching, all the Bibles. We probably have about 30 Bibles at home. I have one, the kids have one each, and Linda has about 25. (laughs) We have so much. So much. We we honestly, could, could there ever have been a time in history, and could there be another part of the world like the West, like the English speaking West, where there is so much? Last week, I read in the Times newspaper of a two-year-old in North Korea sentenced to life in prison because his parents had a Bible in the house. You know that wee dumpy dictator, Kim whatever, Kim Young, Young, I don't know what he's called. Wicked. Just evil on legs. And in that regime, the parents had a Bible in the house parents and the two-year-old life in prison we have so much (laughs) compared to so many are we being faithful with what we have are we being faithful with what we've been given because much will be expected of us much will be expected of us. i take that really seriously I take that verse in James, I think it's James 3, really seriously about, you know, if you're, being, if you're a teacher in the church, you stand in light of greater judgment. There's real responsibility when we have been given so much. Are we being faithful to what we've been given? The Lord's return, I mentioned earlier, described by Paul in his letter to Titus as a blessed hope. It's not something that should frighten us, into manic busyness. It's something that should inspire us in our day-to-day living. Listen to what Paul says, and, and we're nearly done. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Now look at this. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The promise of the blessed hope of the future is not that that men would draw charts and timelines and try to get the newspaper to fit into the Bible or vice versa. It's that we would live well in the present while we wait and all the speculation about when and how he might come, we should perhaps pay more attention to who we will be when he comes and to be faithful in the waiting. Jesus says it will be good for those who are watching, who are ready, 
and who are faithful. Martin Luther, he was a bit mad, really. Did some mad things. Church needs a bit of madness. He was asked, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Now, what would you say? (laughs) What would you say? I would read all of Leviticus three times. You know, I would pray and pray and pray on my knees until I can't walk. I would, what, what are all the things that you might think, goodness, if he was coming back in six hours, here's all the things I would do frantically. Martin Luther's slightly weird response was, I would plant a tree and I would pay my taxes. Now, he's a bit of a cryptic character, but I think what he means is, I would just get on with the normal stuff of life. I wouldn't go clean mad, doing all sorts of frantic stuff. I think what he's saying is, I have lived a life of readiness, and I will continue to live a life of readiness. And if Jesus comes tomorrow, do you know what? I'm not going to, see, for the rest of today, I'm not going to do anything much different than what I plan to do. Because I'm ready. I walk with him. I love him. I minister to him. I live out his, his life as best I can and his light in front of others. And if he comes tomorrow, that's awesome. But I don't need to go clean bonkers for the next 24 hours to put lots of things in place. Jesus is not, is not calling us to do that. Martin Luther is not calling us to do that. I think what he's saying is just live faithfully and continue to way, live the way you're living. Continue to live in readiness, in preparation. Go to work tomorrow. <laughs> you know, if Jesus was coming back tomorrow at 5 p.m., I think he would still want you to go to work. If he was coming back tonight at 9 p.m. and you'd plan to visit family this afternoon or visit a friend or go for a walk in the countryside, I think he would say, do it. Live your life in constant readiness. So that my return doesn't become something that threatens you and means you have to go clean nuts. Let it inspire how you live. And if you're thinking to yourself, if he was coming back in three hours, here are three people I would go to see and I would pray for because I want to see them born again. I would encourage you, start praying for them more. Don't, don't leave it until you think there's a narrow window of opportunity. Let it inspire your daily, continual, faithful prayers. Be dressed and ready for service. Keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return. Church, it will be good. It will be good for the faithful and the ready and the watching. It will be bad for those who mistreat others in the household of faith. Just let that always be a guard on you. Because there's always opportunities to put people down. There's always opportunities to criticize. There's always opportunities to point the finger. And sometimes it's legitimate because sometimes people will mistreat you. Learn the spiritual discipline of just saying, I am not going to propagate this nastiness. (laughs) Because I'm not going to be one who destroys the temple. Father, we love you. We love your word. And if we haven't thought for days or months about the return of Jesus, let it be a blessed hope that inspires how we live, how we enjoy the beauty of your creation, how we enjoy one another, Lord, how we look after and care for each other. May we 
Oh God, I believe in this church. We really love each other and it's a beautiful thing. May it grow and grow and grow. May our love abound more and more. May we be inspired to protect the unity and the love. May we be inspired in how we pray for the lost and how we want to see them brought into the household. And in the context of this passage, Father, most of all, may we personally, individually be ready, be prepared, and just live faithfully. Whatever we're doing today, whatever we're doing tomorrow, Lord, let us just be faithful in it. Help us to understand what it looks like to minister well on a wide, wide level at whatever stage of life we're in. We love you, Lord. As we worship, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move. And as we break bread and drink wine and enjoy a meal together, would your Spirit, O Lord, just rest upon us. Fill this place with joy and celebration at our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.